Hi, Joel Crane here from Cobalt Blue uh, Investor Relations. Joining me today with uh, Matt is Andrew Tong, our Executive and Technical Manager. Cobalt Blue is a uh, exploration and development company, and we're focused on developing the uh, Broken Hill Cobalt Project, uh, which is aimed to produce around three and a half thousand tons of cobalt uh, in a battery-rated product to send around the world to uh, the battery supply chain. Joel, lovely to meet you, Andrew. Lovely to meet you. First time we've met or spoken. Um, we're getting down to the hard yards here, um, de demo plants, etc. So um, you're going to need money to do this. Um, you've raised some. Um, tell me a little bit about that, Joel. Sure. Thanks, Matt. Um, we just finished up a capital raising. It was actually in two parts. First part being a placement of around $4 million to both sophisticated and institutional investors. Um, and then the second part was an entitlement, uh, of which we budgeted around 10 to 12 million. Um, but there was actually 19 million uh, available in, in those shares. Um, but actually 16 million was taken up uh, by our, uh, our existing shareholders on the final day of close. Uh, and then subsequently, um, another sophisticated investor came in and took about, about two million of the shortfall. So bringing the total take up of about 18 of the 19 million dollars available. So a grand total of around 22 million dollars raised over the past couple of weeks. So uh, in summary, we're really pleased with the show of support um, for our strategy from our shareholders uh, who clearly remain committed to the Broken Hill Cobalt Project. Um, and just in terms of where the funds will go, um, look, it really gives us the ability to canvas opportunities uh, in the critical minerals and, and battery supply chain landscape, uh, not only in Australia, but around the world. It also allows us to increase our footprint in Broken Hill. Uh, we, released, we recently purchased the site uh, where our demo demonstration plant is operating, uh, and we're looking for more space for, to support future operations. Um, and also it gives us the ability to retain our existing workforce all the way through to the construction period because we really don't want to lose that knowledge base and their experience. So it was a really good outcome for everyone. Okay, before, before we kind of get stuck into the detail of you know, what you're going to do with the capital, I mean, people are going to be asking about, you know, is this dilutionary? Was this necessary? I mean, what was the cost of that capital? Well, look, the last time we raised sort of around 35 cents with a 45 cent option, this time it was at 58 cents. Um, the stock was trading throughout the raising period uh, above that. And really, it's only about 10%. The stock that we issued is only about 10% of our total 350 million already on issue. So it shouldn't really be much of an issue for the broader market. Okay. Well, then, and, and you know what? Yes, the reason I asked was because obviously, you know, companies need to raise their money at the optimum moment. And, um, you know, shareholders are concerned about this marketplace um, and, and the cost of that capital. Um, but it sounds like, Upward trajectory, so all all okay. Now it's a question of well, what do you do with it? You've, you've outlined some of the things that you're gonna you're gonna touch upon, but um, what are the kind of big sort of ticket items for you in that uh, with that capital? Well, what it really does is just give us the comfort for the next 12 months. We're in a very important period where we're conducting the DFS, and, and Andrew will touch on that. Um, that's that's what he's focused on at the moment, um, but it just gives us that comfort not only to to finish that DFS with um, with the strength that we need. Uh, but also, if any opportunities arise, uh, there is a pretty, you know, it's an interesting landscape, particularly around these prices. So if there's any uh, opportunities, we're, we're well-funded for that. Uh, and like I said, it's, it's really just um, also putting down a stronghold in Broken Hill 
uh, not only um, at our business in the community, but the community itself, just ensuring that we're able to continue to operate there successfully. Okay. And, but it seems to me you, you seem to have done it at a time when you know, co-op prices are, are weakening. Can you give us a sense of what's going on out there? What are the kind of key drivers? Yeah, the cobalt price has been relatively weak, um, particularly in the second half of the year. Price fell quite sharply in the third quarter and then around October, November uh, had stabilized, but um, um, has since drifted uh, below $23 for the first time since 2Q21. And really the reason behind that, beyond the broader macroeconomic overlay, it's really about supply and demand dynamics and really for this particular commodity. On the supply side, there are a number of very large projects that have ramped up, uh, particularly in uh, the DRC. Uh, and that really started last year. It's continuing this year and will continue into next year, this sort of growth. And, and the growth in total output is around 10% of global market over this three-year period. So it's a pretty chunky um, amount of supply coming to market. And while this is occurring, uh, the, the demand profile remains um, uh, sort of mixed. So obviously, when you're talking about cobalt and uh, and batteries, um, about half of the cobalt's um, battery segment uh, goes to EVs, which is a fantastic story that I think that most people would be well, well versed with. But the other half of battery supply goes into uh, consumer electronics, and that sector has been quite weak um, because of that macroeconomic overlay and also because of what's occurring in China. It's, it's um, the, the world's number one consumer electronic market. Uh, it's been relatively weak. So basically half of cobalt's um, battery demand has, has been um, lower than expected. So when you get that demand growth below the supply growth, it, it's really understandable where prices will go. So we do expect prices to remain below the long-term average, which is around $27 for the medium term. But our modeling as well as consensus modeling uh, points to sub supply gaps from 2024. Um, and so as that big supply growth that I outlined uh, wanes, uh, EVs share of demand growth in the cobalt battery segment will increase. Uh, and I think that's when you'll see demand outstripping supply and, and, the, and a resultant supply, uh, sorry, price reaction to that. So, I mean, tell me about the DRC component, because obviously that, that's been sort of the, the, the boogeyman in, in the room in the sense that, um, you know, with, with, with child labor and, and all of those are very neg negative messages and narratives that have been coming out. Uh, up there for the last, you know, I'd say couple of decades, quite frankly. Um, for them to kind of ramp up suggests that people are going, well, okay, either the DRC is starting to do something right, or uh, people are saying, well, we're short of short of uh, products, so we kind of don't care about the DRC factor. So it's, what, what do you think is going to happen there? Well, when you're talking about cobalt and the DRC, what you're really talking about is copper, uh, because cobalt is simply a byproduct of, of the copper market. Uh, and as I think most commodity watchers will know, Copper is one of the most favored outlooks over the next several years because of a shortage. So there's been a lot of investment, particularly over the past decade, uh, in in that region of the world, uh, particularly on the Chinese side. There's a lot of Chinese firms who invested a lot of money, but a couple of the very large um, global producers are also there, and, and they're just cranking as hard as they can to get that copper out. So as um, with in, in that area, as the copper comes out, so does cobalt. And you know, I think even though cobalt price may be downtrodden for the moment, I think uh, the consensus view is for the longer term, uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic place to be, both copper and cobalt. So there's no reason the company shouldn't be investing in there. Uh, and it's just uh, um, because of, in, from, in, from a cobalt perspective, uh, the DRC is just 70% of global supply. So uh, when you get investment there, it's going to affect 
um, the global market. Okay, and, and just in terms of some of the other kind of key catalysts, we talked about, I think last time, Joel, uh, about uh, the Inflation Reduction Act in, in the US and you know what that could mean for demand. Um, is that starting to wane as, as you know inflationary pressures are starting, well, very slowly to, to ease, or is that going to be a big driver still? Well, the Inflation Reduction Act has been a, a pretty cataclysmic move um, and perhaps a game changer, in, particularly in, in the battery markets. And uh, I'll just touch on some of the some of the broader market issues. And then um, when Andrew um, has his um, chance to chip in, um, he's got some pretty uh, interesting specific feedback because he's been dealing with a lot of um, specific companies who, who it's impacting. But really, it's 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 impacting the entire battery supply chain, these basic subsidies that are happening in the U.S. Um, the U.S. has been behind the pace in terms of EV take-up. Government's cognizant of that and doing what they can to incentivize uh, Americans to start buying EVs um, and by, by giving some pretty substantial subsidies. So basically what it's doing is it's forcing um, uh, players in battery supply chains and EV supply chains to either onshore back into the U.S. to to uh, qualify for those subsidies or invest in what's called FTA-friendly countries or countries that uh, the U.S. has a free trade agreement with, Australia, of course, being one of those. So we're seeing new partnerships being put together and building out capacity, and there's been over $30 billion and counting of, of new investment around the world already announced since that legislation was put in place in August. So as companies with non-IRA compliant geographies start shifting battery, making an EV component assemblies to qualify, um, you're just seeing this massive investment that's that's impacting so many uh, players across the, the supply chain. Um, so some of that investment's actually headed down here to Australia. We've already seen two uh, major OEMs make significant um, commitments to Australian companies over the past several weeks. Uh, but most of the announcements are really um, accelerating investment into the U.S. So uh, like I said, Andrew will discuss some of that, uh, some of the impacts in uh, uh, what it means for our company in particular. It's interesting it's, uh, with the OEMs. We've seen a lot of um, coverage over the weekend with regards to uh, you know Tesla's strategy of not getting involved with mining companies versus Ford and GMs, where they are moving up, up upstream uh, and seeing the benefits of that. Do you think you'll see more battery firms, more OEMs, kind of you know diving into the pool and and, and starting to? get involved upstream? Absolutely. If, if they want their products to qualify for the incentives that the IRA is providing, they're really going to have to take control. Uh, and that's what we're seeing, um, particularly in the battery makers themselves. Um, you know, you talk about some of the very large battery makers in Japan and South Korea who don't qualify um, because a lot of their supply chain enters through China and they're trying to eliminate that um, and really invest in in U.S. and the partner countries. Uh, we're seeing that just straight away it's it's fascinating how quickly these companies have responded well i think it's also fascinating the, to, to note the size of the, the difference between the, the size of the balance sheets between these, these companies and it's probably really really good for mining and, and, and miners alike um andrew we've not spoken before hello how are you <laughs> good mate um why don't you kind of show through a, bit, a little bit about your background before we kind of dive into some of the topics i want to get into Sure. So some of my background, uh, really, I started as a process engineer, a chemical engineer for the first uh, so 10 years of working life. And then since then, I've been working on the corporate management of junior uh, companies, base metals, precious metals, gold, copper, uh, those sorts of projects. I joined Cobalt Blue in 2017. And so with Joe, really built out the company to where it is today. Uh, my main focus within the company is making sure that the project gets delivered 
So running all of the technical studies, all of the feasibility study, demonstration plant work, but also working heavily on the commercial investment, the offtake side, and putting together the project package for finance. Well, okay, everything I love to talk about money. Um, so pretty much. <laughs> look, um, DF, Joel mentioned that you're you're working on, on the on the DFS. Um, you know, for, for me, the kind of the, you, you, like I said at the beginning, you're you're coming to the last last uh, hard year last few yards on this project now and moving towards that kind of commerciality component. So what, what are the, what are the kind of the, the big uh, ticket items for you? DFS is obviously going to be one of them. Uh, where are you with that? So we've got a huge 12 months ahead of us. We would like to be at project uh, decision-making at sort of this time next year, a little bit of a window, obviously. Uh, the key hurdles that we need to complete before then is the DFS with the capital operating cost estimates. We need to get in place all of the permits and approvals. We're expecting to submit the applications for those early next year. Um, and so then hopefully they'll be approved within a six to nine month timeframe thereafter. Uh, but part and parcel of all of that is bringing the offtake and the commercial interest into the project alongside the DFS. Uh, we really take the view that there's no point doing some really great technical work, landing with some great financials, but then having a huge gap or not really meeting the market expectations. And so we've taken the view or the philosophy that we want to have offtake, project finance, DFS, as well integrated as possible. A, a classic example of that is if we do an offtake to a particular country, then that has a particular logistics supply chain that has to be costed properly back all the way through to our mine gate. And often projects don't take that level of detail or take that forward thinking into their DFS. So they're just some little examples of trying to bring it all together as one package. Yeah, that's an interesting point you raised. We, we've just done some analysis on a West African gold story. And you know, little things like the rainy season will affect the cost of their transport for six months of the year because the roads get washed away. <laughs> there we go. So I, I, love, I, love, that, I love that detail. Um, now, you've got some exciting results as well, I, uh, I'm hearing. I got yes. So um, our project plan was to complete the pre-feasibility study levels which we did in 2018 and 2020. Uh, the big difference between those two is we did quite a bit of drilling between 2018 and 2020 and build out the resource base. That now gives us a 20-year project life. Since then, our attention has really turned to proving the process. And in 2021, we built a pilot plant. We ran that successfully and kind of proved the chemical aspects of the process. This year, we've rebuilt that as a demonstration plant. The demonstration plant is treating around 5,000 tonne of ore all the way through to cobalt products, and our second uh, byproduct is elemental sulfur. So that demonstration plan investment is absolutely critical to A, get credible engineering data, and B, provide large-scale samples for the offtake discussions. And the pilot plant's a great stepping stone in 2021, but really the engineering detailed design is going to come from the demonstration plant. So this year's been a huge, huge year. Uh, we've completed our mining in August. And just recently, we completed the concentrate. So the ore is turned into concentrate. We processed just over 4,000 tonne of ore. Uh, typical recoveries uh, were up around 90 to 95% recovery of cobalt into that concentrate. And now we're just starting the processing of that concentrate to turn it into the cobalt products. Fantastic. So um, it's super, super important, this, this demo plan, not just for you to say, okay, we we can deliver what we said we're going to deliver and feel good about yourselves in terms of what you can build, but it's it's the commercial component. I, gotta, I always come back to that because you've got to make money. You've got to make margin 
and you've got to make you've got to deliver kind of scale or scale us up as, as, as far as the project will allow so with, with regards to conversations with potential partners um where, where are you? Because they've got to trial the products out. You've got to show consistency of, de, of, of delivery, and they've got to feel comfortable that you're going to be de- deliver into contracts, right? So um, who are you talking to? What are the sorts of conversations? What stages are you at? And, and when do you get to that kind of competitive tension component where you work out what your sales could be and where it's going? Sure. So the demonstration plant, that whole exercise, including the pilot and running the small-scale mine, has put us um, well ahead of the curve for executing the project and moving into commissioning. So this gives us an advantage to build up people, so team, HR issues, safety issues, policy issues, regulatory issues, community footprint, all that sort of experience we can parallel straight into our full commercial plan. Coming to your question in terms of offtake, it also gives us an, an opportunity to invite all those parties to come to our site, to meet our team, to get comfortable with us. And so much of Contracts is all about understanding each other and having that trust and relationship. So while we're not at that commercial stage yet, we can actually do a lot of front-end building of that relationship, a lot of confidence building. Then sort of to your question around what sort of offtake groups are we talking to, we've been running heavily on a global process this year. Out of the pilot plant, we sent sample to about 25, 30 groups, so that was 2021. This year, we've followed up on that and really whittled that down to now as we speak, sort of about six or seven key groups that we're really pushing hard with to negotiate some contracts. They represent all aspects of the supply chain, so trading houses, battery supply chain companies, all the way through to EV companies, so a range of those. And the types of um, strategies or investment avenues that we're looking at range from joint ventures through to prepayments, through to loans, through to offtake agreements with fixed pricing or hedge pricing floor and cap. So really the full gambit of opportunity is there. But my main message is that we're now down to a very tight shortlist uh, and they represent the, the, the four key geographic uh, markets, South Korea, Japan, EU and the US, or some interplay of those four. Okay, sorry, it gives a little bit of insight if you don't mind. You've gone from 25 to 5. Who discounts who? Is it a case of people were just kind of, you know, browsing uh, and just wanted to see what was happening? Or do you guys actually go, do you know what? I The size of their balance sheet, the size of the opportunity with these guys, the, the, the extent of what we could be doing with them into the future with other kind of product lines. I mean, how, how does it work? Yeah, I think it's more of the second one. It's more about longer term relationships. And then how do we grow? Because while Cobalt Blue currently has the Broken Hill project, we do have views that we'll like to be multi-project company. There's also a huge opportunity for us to go further downstream, so beyond cobalt sulfate, and then consider making precursor, but we don't have access to the nickel, the manganese, the lithium, and all the other good things that you need to put into cathode active material. So we'd need to form collaborations or joint ventures to be able to do that. And so that's certainly an aspect of looking at our current offtake market, is how do we then, in five years, 10 years, 15 years down the track, merge and acquire and grow the business. In terms of the uh, weighting between companies, uh, and I'll come back to some of the comments that Joel was making about the new dynamic or paradigm that we're in because of the Inflation Reduction Act, that is changing behaviour dramatically on the ground and entire new supply chains, 
new processes and facilities have been putting up, new relationships are being developed. And so we need to be agile enough to change or pivot. And that has really washed through the whole global market in the last quarter or so. But there's still another six months or 12 months of how that's really going to pan out before it takes effect. That's, that's, that's really interesting. That's fascinating. So, um, Joel, I'm probably going to bounce back to you if, if, if that's okay. Um, so just looking at the, the run road ahead, um, t- what are the kind of ma- major moments we're looking for? We've, we've got some idea from Andrew about how long some of the stuff that he's working on will, will take. Um, you're going to need some, well, to move to the next phase uh, after um, the demo plant, you're going to need to start thinking about main commercial uh, plant as well. So w- w- when would that be? Look, um, commercial negotiations and, and contract negotiations, as Andrew outlined, are, are continuing. Um, given the change in dynamic uh, that we've been outlining, particularly with the Inflation Reduction Act, um, that's probably not going to be concluded until the first quarter next year. And that's really the first major stepping stone. Um, beyond that, it's what Andrew and his team are, are doing in terms of um, finishing up the demonstration plant operations and then crunching all that data and, and um, you know, using that to optimize and understand what the plant, the commercial plant itself will look like. So throughout that period, for the next um, six to 12 months, uh, we'll be able to announce um, a, a number of several steps along that journey um, as Andrew and his team continue to, to build that out. Um, so those are the, and then all in between then, we have to start working out the funding package. So those conversations are ongoing. Uh, it's an evolution that'll take um, you know over the next 12 months. Okay, and me- so what do we say? Message to shareholders. Obviously, um, price, cohort price is off somewhat, but in terms of the, the journey that you've got to go on this 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 path that you've laid out for yourselves you've got a bunch of stuff to deliver we're in that kind of you know advanced development um phase now so shareholders should be thinking what about your organization it's going to be quiet for the next 12 months or is it is a good news oh, certainly won't be quiet um i just think um as we're as we're trying to outline here we, we think we'll we're at the pointy end of some commercial negotiations and we think we'll have some interesting um outcomes for that over the next quarter or so um, and there'll be lots of information to talk about the outcome of, of what's occurred in the ground and the, the demonstration plant. I don't know, Andrew, maybe could you give a couple examples of, of some of the, the key milestones from the demonstration plant that, that we'll be talking about in the next few months? Sure. I, I think, Matt, in answer to your question about news flow, it's going to be a very, very strong year, 2023. We've got some really big goals that we need to tick off. Um, in terms of demonstration plant results, we need to publish some recoveries to the market around that. And that's a huge stepping stone for us because those recoveries are then going to underpin the throughput guarantee or the process warranties that we're going to take forward to the banks for the commercial facility. So recoveries are going to be huge um, in terms of the impact on our financial model. Obviously, once we get the CapEx and OpEx numbers, they're going to be very important. Um, there's a lot of interest in how that, that in how those numbers are put together, particularly in what I'll call an inflationary environment. Does that inflationary environment still persist into the back end of next year and then into our targeted uh, product, uh, construction years in 24 and 25, or do some of those pressures start to ease? Uh, so there's a, a lot of interest in that. Um, so there's some of the big sort of technical um, milestones for next year. The other ones really sit around our commercial relationships because we'd like to take some of those to market in the first half of next year and start to de-risk the rollout of the project. Brilliant. 
guys, Joel, thank you very much for um, coming on and explaining what you know, what, what giving 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 us an update. Andrew, lovely to meet you. Sounds like you guys are in control of everything that you can be in control of. Um, let's see what twenty twenty three brings us. Thank, thank you, Matt. Matt.